Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Slater, Joint Manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Tom joined Bailey Gifford in 2000 and became a partner of the firm in 2012. After serving as Deputy Manager for five years, Tom was appointed Joint Manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust in 2015. During his time at Bailey Gifford, he has also worked in the developed Asia and UK equity teams. His investment interest is focused on high growth companies, both in listed equity markets and as an investor in private companies. Tom graduated with a BSc in Computer Science with Mathematics from the University of Edinburgh in 2000. First and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, Tom, and thanks for sparing us some of your time today. Thank you very much for having me. Well, starting at the very beginning, could you um, talk us through the kind of style and objectives of the uh, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust? We are trying to achieve long-term capital appreciation for our shareholders. And the way we do that is to invest in what we believe to be the world's outstanding growth companies. Companies that we see as having very big opportunities that, that span decades and, and companies that have some particular edge in going after those opportunities. And where we find those companies, we aim to be very long-term, very patient shareholders. Seems to be a, a fair smattering just within your top 10 holdings of, of technology stocks. Is, is that a, a particular area of focus? It is in the sense that we invest in a lot of companies that are using the tools of modern technology to bring change into their areas of focus. But, but the interest isn't the technology in and of itself. Um, we, we aren't interest, interested in companies that make widgets. It's more the new business models that technology can facilitate and the, the addressable markets it opens up. It, you know, it seems to us the combination of progress of Moore's Law advanced software, ubiquitous mobile communication are tools that companies are able to um, utilize to, to grow their share or to, to, to grow dominance in, in industries that have previously not seen a great deal of, of change. And of course, rightly or wrongly, the, the very mention of uh, technology enablers or indeed technology in itself brings to mind the US. But of course, um, you've got a, a, an equal interest in, in what's happening in the likes of China as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, some of the most important growth companies of the past decade have come out of the West Coast of the US. The rise of the big online platforms has almost been the most important feature of the investment landscape of the past 10 years. And the, the only companies that have really rivaled what's come out of the West Coast of the US have come from China. So companies like Alibaba, like Tencent, you know, innovative companies in their own right that have been able to grow extremely strong positions, have world-leading technology. And what's been really interesting is that these big platform companies have achieved huge returns to scale. They've often grown faster. They've needed less capital as they've got larger, which has been a real challenge for, for everybody else in trying to compete with them. And the sad fact is that they, there haven't really been any substantive competitors or peers emerging from the, from the European economy. And presumably the fact that it's such a populous country, China, um, gives them a, a, an additional edge as well once successful. Well, I think that home market advantage is one that's becoming increasingly important. You know, that, as you say, it's been really populous country, but there's, they've not necessarily been the, the wealth in that populace to, to drive really large businesses. But as we've seen the growth of the consumer economy in, in China, the emergence of the middle class, the spending power that comes with that, the greater sophistication and understanding of online tools. I think what's 
you're starting to see real momentum from that domestic market. So to take the example of food deliveries, we used to own Grubhub, the the US food delivery business. They deliver about half a million meals a day. We do own Meituan Jiangping, the Chinese um, local services business. They deliver 20 million meals per day. So there's there's for for some of these emerging network businesses, the, the Chinese companies have had that home market advantage. And I think there's another advantage in there, which is that the, the Chinese domestic market is ferociously competitive. So Meituan hasn't emerged as a dominant player in that market because you know it had a first mover advantage and got on with it. It's come because on an operational level, it's it's moved faster and been more aggressive than 2,000 other local competitors to, to get dominance of that vast market. And in terms, again, just looking down the list of your top 10 holdings, um, featuring very prominently there, is Amazon. And, and given the success Amazon has had, both in terms of its share price, price performance as well as it, its exponential growth, clearly you obviously remain fans of the longer term story. Yes, I think Amazon still has a really big opportunity in front of it. Sure, it has been successful. And in some categories, uh, e-commerce has, has now achieved reasonable penetration. But there are some really big categories where they're, they're only just getting going. I think grocery is the one that stands out to me. You know, a market that runs to trillions of dollars. We've seen a reasonable penetration of online grocery here in the UK. Um, actually, it is the most penetrated market globally. But for continental countries, it really we really haven't seen anything like the type of penetration. And moreover, I think the UK model of simply running vans from existing supermarkets is, is hardly revolutionary. But I think we're seeing the stitching together of online with click and collect with physical stores overlaid with data. And I think that's going to drive a real change in the model of grocery. And that's a market big enough to make a difference even to the likes of Amazon. And at the same time, they've been able to use their technology skills to expand into adjacent areas. So the provision of IT infrastructure to companies. I'll give you an example. I was was out in Seattle just before lockdown hit um, in in the spring of this year. I went into the new Amazon Go supermarket format. They've started in convenience stores with this technology. But they've, they've now increased the scale up to the size of a, a local Tesco local type, um, small format supermarkets. You go into the supermarket, you scan your device as you, as you walk through the door, put it back in your pocket, and then walk around, pick things up off the shelves and walk out. So they've addressed some of the, the pain points that the, the supermarket experience has for people. And they've used data to basically create an experience which is much better. But again, you go back to what drives this, the technology that powers it gets exponentially more powerful. The cost of that technology declines every year. So we, we should expect this to get cheaper, faster, easier, and move to larger format stores. So you can see how that could be an opportunity big enough to make a difference even to, to a company of Amazon scale. Understood. And in terms of looking at the number one holding, as well indeed as the number 10 holding, seems uh, something of a past, present and future of the automotive industry, although I'm sure you hold them for different reasons. So number one, we've got Tesla. Number 10, Ferrari. Presumably you're, you've got different reasons for holding those two stocks. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, for, for Tesla, there are some really big changes underway in transportation. Electrification is the first. Autonomy, I think, is the second. And then as a consequence of the first two, I think we start to see changes in the model of transport and the um, ownership of the transportation fleet. This is a really big opportunity. 100 million passenger cars are sold each year. Very, very small penetration of electric vehicles within that, but growing rapidly. And what we've seen over the past 18 months is that when you give consumers a product, um, which is at the same upfront price point, but has lower 
cost of ownership, better performance characteristics. There's huge pent-up demand for these products. And at the same time, Tesla, the operational execution has improved dramatically. And I think we can now have greater confidence that they, they will be the ones, one of the ones to capitalize on this opportunity. At a time when the traditional auto industry seems to be seeing model launches delayed and or canceled, and we're re- really failing to grasp that, that what's, what's happening. As you say, Ferrari is slightly at the other end of the spectrum, and particularly in terms of volumes. This is a business which is effectively, in our eyes, the world's most valuable luxury brand. The, the number of buyers are, are measured in thousands uh, of, of very wealthy individuals. And our, our contention is that the, what, the, the very sensible management of that brand you know, the, the, all the brand associations can carry through from the internal combustion engine age in, into other forms of technology. So sure, you have to keep the audience that, that love the V12s and the V8s happy, but, but equally the, the Ferrari brand is synonymous with performance. That's the importance of Formula One and using the latest technology to create a, a, a phenomenal experience. And really, you're only talking about Ferrari recruiting thousands of new buyers, a small number of thousands. From, from amongst the uh, emerging Asian middle class or, or Asian, Asian wealthy, I should say. I don't think the middle class will afford Ferraris. But, um, and just, there's just a whole different set of demand drivers and demand dynamic for that business. See, from a, a, a wider perspective, you, you've got somewhere around 18% of your total assets in unlisted companies, yeah. which obviously for, for different reasons has rung a couple of alarm bells over the last couple of years. How do you navigate that particular part of the market with, with having a fair chunk of your assets in those unlisted companies? The reason we got into investing in private companies that was that we saw companies were able to use the tools of modern technology to grow their business with far less capital than has been the case historically. And as they haven't needed capital, they haven't had financial investors controlling their boardrooms. Um, there hasn't been the same pressure to move to the, the public markets. And so if we wanted to invest in the most attractive growth companies in the world, we had to have the flexibility to invest in both public and private companies. But that's not to say that, that we, we've taken to investing in small companies. You know, if you look at our largest unlisted holding in Ant Financial, if that company were listed in the UK, it would be the biggest listed company in the UK. Cool. So. This is not venture capital funding. This is simply saying that these businesses in any other era would be, would be large listed companies. And so there are some, some technical or operational issues that one needs to work through, you know, making sure you have current valuations for these assets included in your asset value. You know, there, there's greater legal due diligence before you make these investments. But really that's sort of admin. And, and the most important thing for us is, can we invest in the most attractive long-term growth companies? You know, our average holding period is close to 10 years anyway in listed markets. It doesn't really matter if we could trade every day or not. But what really matters is can you find the, the world's great entrepreneurs? Can you access the best opportunities? And we believe that in, in the long run, that's the most profitable approach for, for our shareholders. It'll obviously be rather less of a, a concern for you. But as a matter of interest, how has the trust been holding up over the last few months of madness that we've had since uh, February, March time. Yeah, as you say, our, our focus is is resolutely on the on the long run. And you know, we we think the you know, the outcomes over shorter periods can be can be little more than chance. But what's been quite unusual about this crisis is that you haven't seen a change in the leadership of the market. So the companies that have been driving change in the economy, that have been providing modern technology tools for communication for socializing for work 
have been the big beneficiaries of the behavior changes that, that we've seen. You know, we're having this, this call today on, on Zoom that their business has been massively accelerated by what's happened. And, and yeah, that, was, that was a position that we took in the trust when it, when it listed on the stock market just over a year ago. Now, it doesn't mean that, 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 you know, that this level of demand will be sustained. You know, I, I, I do hope we will all be back out in the, in the real world very shortly. And, 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 but I do think you know, people will question right, exactly you know, what, when do I want to use these tools and when is a face-to-face meeting and the associated travel, time, carbon footprint required. To answer the question directly, the trust's um, asset value has remained very robust through this period. The question here is, as we, we move through this period, what behavior changes stick? To what extent have we brought in new cohorts of users that will underpin growth for the next decade? You know, that's what happened to Amazon in the, in the 2008-2009 financial crisis. You know, you've seen lots of people experiment with services that they hadn't used before. You've seen lots of people use them for different use cases. You know, I bought my books off Amazon. Now I'll try and try and buy my, my weekly grocery shop. So how much of that sticks and, and how much of it leads to sustained behavior changes is the big questions that will that will be answered over the next five years. I notice also very much along those lines, uh, obviously another beneficiary of the global lockdown has been the likes of Netflix. And, and that's one of your top holdings as well. Was that one that was already one of your top holdings uh, prior to the lockdown? Yes, it was. So at, at our, our year end, which was at the end of March, we still owned 29 of our top 30 holdings from a year previously. Just illustrating the fact that you know, we, we don't tend to turn the, the portfolio over very often. And our longest standing holdings we've owned for more than a decade. So there, there, is, there is very rarely big or revolutionary change in the portfolio. So yes, Netflix has, has been there for a while. And you know, the, the argument here is that you, this is the first company to build a global distribution footprint in media. And I, I, you know, over the, my 20 years as an investor, I've sat through countless debates about whether distribution or content was more important, but we've never had a company with this kind of distribution scale before. And then they've used that position to invest more and more in producing their own content and exclusive content. And I think you know, that, that's given them firepower. That's, you know, they, they're, their spending is more than twice what the next biggest content producer makes today. They've got vast scale now in this. And I think there's just a possibility this becomes a really, really big global distribution business and running into hundreds of millions of users. And I think if we get to that point, the profitability will be unlike anything we've we've seen before in the in the media industry. Absolutely fascinating uh, in, insights, Tom. Uh, thanks very much again for your time. Unfortunately, we, we have indeed run out of time. So I will thank again Tom Slade, the Joint Manager of the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. And indeed, thank you for listening. And do join us next time when we record another interactive investor podcast. <laughs>